This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Amanda, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories about alcoholism and recovery. I'm here with my co-host, Ellie, and our special guests, Jeff Bertolette and Mark LeBon. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Amanda. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Tonight's show is called Denial Equals Death. There is an epidemic of addiction in our country, especially amongst younger people, and it is everywhere. In this show, we will talk to Jeff Bertolette, a father who was in recovery himself and whose daughter Morgan is recovering from a nearly fatal drug overdose. His heartbreaking and hopeful story will amaze you. We will also talk to Dr. Mark LeBon, Chief Clinical Officer at Gosnold, Inc., a treatment center on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and a partner of Shining Strong. And Mark will talk about his experience talking with folks both young people and communities about how they feel about drug use and addiction in their communities. What he has to say will startle you and hopefully call you to action in helping to speak out about this deadly epidemic. We will also talk about ways to help people struggling with addiction and what you can do within your community to help. I'd like to start the show by introducing Jeff Bertolette. Jeff and his wife Karen are close friends of ours. On Mother's Day this past year, Jeff's daughter Morgan overdosed on heroin, and at the end of our show that night, we asked our listeners to pray for them. I'm happy to say our prayers were answered, and what we have witnessed with Morgan and Jeff in the past few months has been nothing short of a miracle. But I will let Jeff tell you about himself and his, this, and the story. 
Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show with us tonight. We you know, can't thank you enough. And I'd like you to start off with you sharing your experience. Okay. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. And it's a little emotional when you describe it like that, how it really is just a miracle because the prognosis was not good at all for the first three months. Basically, I was going to just tell you guys a little bit, some backstory with me and Morgan. I went to my first inpatient treatment center 17 years ago when Morgan was, or Morgan's mom was pregnant with Morgan. And for the next 12 years, I was in and out of, I went to several more rehab centers. And every time I went, it was basically in the back of my mind, it was now I could get straight and be a father to Morgan. And it never really worked out until five and a half years ago. The first 12 years uh, of Morgan's life, like I said, I was very active and I was, I was into some, I was a bad addict and a bad alcoholic the whole time until five and a half years ago. An absentee parent and uh, completely absent. I saw Morgan one, about once or twice a year briefly and as a parent. With kids of parents that are addicts, the kids are like 50% more apt to become addicts, you know what I mean? And then for me, it was like on top of that, it was not being there for her. So she had a lot of strikes against her growing up. And so anyway, but five and a half years ago, when it finally worked, I actually listened and did what I was told and, and it finally clicked. Right away, I started, I reached out to Morgan and her grandmother and her West Coast family. They live in Portland and they welcomed me right back into the family. And since then, we, she would come to Boston for like about a month in the summer and a couple of weeks at Christmas. And I made a few trips out there. And uh, we weren't. We were getting closer, and and I was being a dad to her, which is all I ever wanted to be. A couple of years ago, I'm thinking it was more like about three years ago. We had a great visit. She came to Boston, and she brought a friend with her. And it was between eighth grade and freshman year of high school. And we had a great visit, and then she went back to Portland. And within two months, she was she had started at um, Milwaukee High School in Portland, and within a very short time, she was in trouble. She had gotten caught smoking pot at school, and then when they gave her a drug test, the drug test came back positive for heroin. When she was in Boston that summer, she's a teenager, but it was, and, and maybe she, I think we suspected that her and her friend were smoking cigarettes, you know, which was like a teenager smoking cigarettes. But how fast it, like, happened when she went back to Oregon that that fall was unbelievable. So for the next couple of years, she actually was like doing the runaway thing, doing the go to school to get high thing, which I did that too, 25, 30 years ago. But anyway, yeah, so she, so yeah, she got into the heavy drugs right away. The last two years have been really difficult as far as she didn't, she stopped going to high school because she was just going there and hooking up with the kids with the drugs and whatnot and getting in trouble. And so the last couple of years, it's been several treatment centers, outpatient therapy and all that. And, and basically it just didn't really stick. Like the disease progressed. I, I keep thinking like if I was 15 years old and I got into heroin or meth or both, I wouldn't have lasted more than a couple of months. Anyway, that's the scary thing about this is, is how hard the drugs are that the kids are into now. 
But anyway, she, Morgan, she, she didn't do so good at many rehabs. The, the environment she was in and the people that were around her weren't good. A lot of addiction in her family on that side, a lot of addiction on my side, and then the, just the, the area is just overrun by heroin and meth, that area in Portland. Trying to get the, time, the, the, like the dates right. Like last Christmas, um, she decided she didn't want to come see us for Christmas. She had a, she had a new boyfriend, and she was really skinny. She had you know, gotten in some trouble out there, and we were all really worried about her. Like the, the news I was getting from, out, from Portland was she's skinny. We think she's on drugs again. And, and so we, we, had, uh, we had what I call a text war, and she was pissed at me. And I was pretty bummed out and thinking that I knew what she was up to because I had done it myself. And I thought, I kept saying, Morgan, you're going to die. If you keep doing heroin, you're going to die. And, um, you know, it was denial. It was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm straight. And we all knew she wasn't. So anyway, a little bit after that, she, she got in some more trouble. And then Grandma Ann, Ann is her grandmother who's basically raised her. And she's 25 years in the program, sober, was a drug and alcohol counselor. She, me and her, you know, have got together and she said, I'm, I'm going to go to court and give up my rights as her, as the custodial guardian or whatever. And then that way <clears throat> the judge will, will give her to you and she'll go to Boston. She had, uh, just let me backtrack just once uh, or for a second. Morgan was in Boston with me and Karen for like about six weeks, five or six weeks the previous Christmas. She was out for a week, and then we all decided that she should stay. And, uh, and, she, and she was going to 12-step meetings with me, and she cleaned or cleared right up after a couple weeks and was saying to us, oh, you know what, I should stay here. This is better for me. And not too long after that, she missed her friends and family, and she felt like she was cured, and she went back to Oregon. But anyway, so we explained that to the judge, how good she did in Boston, and, and that Ann wanted her to come to live with us. And the judge basically said, she's in trouble here. She has to, because she had pissed dirty. She had done, failed a, uh, a urine test, sorry, and <laughs> during there. But anyway, she failed a couple drug tests, and the judge said, no, she's not going to Boston. She's staying here, and she's going to go to an, uh, a pretty hardcore inpatient uh, rehab here. And I said to him, I said, Okay, Your Honor, but if, if and when she gets out of that treatment center, if she wants to relapse, all she has to do is make one phone call in that environment. And he said to me, he said, oh, how they are, the drug addicts, they can get it anywhere they go. Boston's not going to help her. And I said, i, I, I got to disagree with you there. In Boston, she has a whole bunch of straight family, and she has me who's in recovery, and she has my recovery community who all know and love her just from seeing her at the meetings and whatnot. And he just said, whatever. And I said to myself, okay, the next best thing really is like a long-term inpatient. That very same day, she got in big trouble. She flipped out because she didn't want to go to treatment, obviously. She went and she got, she got, went and got really high on heroin. And she then got caught with the heroin. Her grandmother caught her with heroin on her and also discovered that she had stolen some credit cards um, from her and charged a bunch of stuff. 
So she called me and said, what do we do? What do we do? I said, you have to have her arrested. Call the police. If there's no consequences, she's going to keep doing this, and she's going to kill herself with the drugs. And so Ann did that, and I'm sure that wasn't easy. I know that wasn't easy, but it, it seemed to work. She ended up going to, they had to put her in, like, juvie hall or, like, kid jail for a couple of weeks until a, until a bed opened up at, a, like, a more intense rehab for, for kids who have been in trouble and have serious problems, drug problems. And so that was good. So she was very remorseful, and we thought that was rock bottom, and, and we were happy and that she was somewhere safe, and um, she was doing pretty good in that treatment center. She had a weekend pass. She had earned a weekend pass a couple weeks before Mother's Day, and she called us and she said, thanks for the, we sent her some stuff, some books and whatnot. She said, thank you guys for the care package, and when I get out, I want to come to Boston. And she said, I don't think I can do it here. And I was like, Morgan, believe me, I tried there too, and I could not get sober there. And, and please, whenever you're ready, come live with us. And I was real happy, but we were all real happy that she had said that. So then a couple of weeks later was Mother's Day, and it was I had just gotten home from my favorite 12-step meeting, my home group. And is that safe to say? <laughs> Without mentioning which, yes. yeah, no, I didn't want to break anonymity. But so I got home from the meeting, and my mother and Karen and her mother, we were going to Mother's Day brunch, and we were just talking about Morgan and Ann, and hey, how's Morgan doing? And I said, she's doing great. The, my cell phone rings, and it's Ann, Morgan's grandma. And I said, oh, wow, it's Ann, cool. And I answer the phone, and I go, Ann, happy Mother's Day. And all I hear is like sobbing. I'm like, oh, shoot. And she just could barely get the words out. And she said, Jeff, Morgan overdosed last night. And I was like, what? I didn't even know she was out on a pass. I said, what, in treatment? She goes, no, she was out on a pass. She came home last night, and she was. we saw her at 1.30 in the morning doing laundry. And I found her this morning at 8.30, blue. having She was basically dead when they found her. No heartbeat, and she had aspirated, and she was blue. And basically, I just went into a little bit of shock. It wasn't shocking. It, it was shocking to me because I thought she was doing so much better, and she had sounded so much better when I talked to her. But it wasn't shocking because as a former heroin addict myself, I, I basically, that was never, it just was never going to, um, if she had relapsed, it wouldn't surprise me, and if she OD'd, it would never have surprised me either. So anyway, that day, uh, within a couple hours, we were on a plan to go out there, and we were there for three weeks, and she was basically, like, in a coma, and the doctors all said, she probably won't live, and if she does live, she's going to be a vegetable, and they, were, they weren't saying, let her go, but they were saying, like, her, her, her quality of life does not look good, <clears throat> and, and it was, yeah, it was devastating. It was crazy sad, and if it was any... 17-year-old beautiful girl, I would have been devastated and sad. But to have it be Morgan, and after like the 12 years of trying to get sober for her, basically for myself, but for her too, and then to have that uh, a couple years later, to have this happen, it was really, it, it was tough. But so we were there for three weeks, and she was on the ventilator and the feeding tube, and she never, and she was a vegetable for the first three months. About I think it was like the first week of August, we were back in Boston, and Ann called me and said, and, and we, had been talk, we had talked a lot. I had been back and forth a few times 
we had been talking a lot. And to be honest with you, I felt like it would be better if we let her go. But I also wasn't going to be the one to give up and say it's time to pull the plug either. But on uh, the first week of August, Ann called and said she's back in ICU. <clears throat> and she had respiratory failure. And she said, I'm tired. And she said, it's not really fair. And I said, Ann, believe me, I've been, this is, that's how I have felt for like the last couple months that she wouldn't want to live like that, and, and it's not really fair. I thought it was inhumane to keep her alive the way she was, and we decided to let her go peacefully, and they were going to talk to the hospital. We were in talks with the hospital about how to do that, and the very next day she started responding to the, to the nurses and the doctors. Yeah, slowly at first, obviously slowly, but the first thing she did was she gave the finger to one of the nurses, which, yeah, which is so more. And then her personality, she, right? Yeah, she said the word F, I think, when they asked her a question, too. And then she was, like, tapping her finger once for yes and twice for no. And it's just, yeah, when this happened, we reached out, like, on social media, and we t- told everybody. That's kind of, I learned that in recovery. You asked for help and whatnot. But, but there was prayer groups and candles lit and all over the country. And uh, to me, like, it just worked. Like, it saved Morgan. And so since then, it's been, like, a real steady improvement a little bit every day. And so we're going out there Saturday. And uh, she's going home from the hospital October 30th, I think. Or it might be a couple days after that. But that's, like, the target date. And she's walking a little bit. And she's uh, talking. And she was really bummed and really pissed off at herself. And she knows what happened to her. And, but that's getting better, too. She's, she's doing the physical therapy and the uh, occupational therapy and speech therapy. And, uh, and that's where we're at this point. And she's wow. getting better, and it's just a, an actual miracle. That is ah. such an incredible miracle. Yeah, well, we thought, yeah, we thought she was, uh, you know, to think for months that, she, that your daughter would be better off dead and yeah. then to have this happen is just unbelievable. Oh my goodness! It, it is such a, an incredible, incredible journey that all of you guys have been on. And I'll just, on a personal note, I, I just want to add that I'm in, in respect and admiration of how you and Karen and have been handling the whole situation and open and honest and graceful way that you have kept all of us. It, it, the, the way that you've been sharing what Morgan has been going through and the way that you've been sharing it on a personal level has been so inspiring. And prayerful and graceful, and in so many ways, has it's you can't hear her story or know you on any level and not be profoundly impacted by the power of recovery and all of that, also. And having a sober father through all of that, and what a gift that is. It's, the, it's about the worst thing that can happen as a parent. And I've just been so incredibly amazed and humbled and honored to be able to even witness what it is that you guys have been through and how you've been processing it. So thank you for that. Thanks, Ellie. That makes me feel good. I, I always say, just real quick, I, I'm sure my time's running out here, but, okay. but if I wasn't sober, if I was not sober and I didn't have the support of you guys and, and the sober recovery community, I'd be out in the woods somewhere with a gun in my mouth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, and I would not be able to be somewhat part of the solution and I wouldn't be part of like her team and I wouldn't be I just wouldn't be. I would be 
whatever. I'd probably be dead anyway if I didn't get sober five years ago. But to be sober and to have support and and to yeah. feel that people really care is just unbelievable. It, it has been a complete, total life changing experience for all of us. So, understand. Well, I think yeah. it's I think it's remarkable too. It's just it just goes to show. True, this is a type of thing that people in recovery will say. I, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to use, unless this happens. And this is one of those, unless this happens. And you're just such a shining example and proof positive that using, drinking, whatever, it does not help anything. And that by you being present for her, just look at the miracle that is unfolding in front of us for, for you, for her, for everyone to witness. It's, it's just really a shining example of that. That doesn't solve anything, and you're right. You would have been in the woods or whatever, or worse, but and she needs you here now when you're here, and that's, you're just a, a, an incredible shining example. Well, Jeff, and I, I'm really grateful to, be, to call you my friend. Oh, thanks, Amanda. Yeah, me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles, little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. We're definitely going to circle back and talk more with Jeff, but I think we also, we definitely want to be able to hear also from Mark. And you're still there, right, Mark? Yes, I am, yes. Okay, I'll just introduce you briefly. Dr. Mark LeBon is the Chief Clinical Officer at Gosnold, Inc., which, as Amanda mentioned earlier, is a treatment center on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And uh, I am a proud graduate of Gosnold at their, for their 30-day program located in Catawba, Massachusetts, and also a partner of Shining Strong. And um, as Amanda mentioned in the introduction, we met Mark back in September. Well, she may not have mentioned this in the introduction, but we met Amanda and I, and I met Mark back in September when we attended an event that Gosnold had hosted a symposium. And uh, we were fortunate enough to be seated next to Mark at the same table. And we obviously got talking about recovery and addiction and the stigma and some of the ways that he has launched efforts to help his community and other communities with the, this epidemic. And the stories that he shared were really mind-blowing for us. And so we were so thrilled that you agreed to be on the show, Mark, and to share a little bit about yourself and your experiences talking with young people and communities about the rampant drug abuse problem and what initiatives that you brought or tried to bring and continue to bring to communities and what you heard from young people and how the communities reacted and just share a little bit of your experiences along those lines. That would be really great. Thank you for inviting me again. And I just want to begin by also thanking Jeff for sharing his experience. It's extremely powerful. And I Mm -hmm. think it also demonstrates the effect that substance use can have on individuals and their families. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I entered this arena uh, with 30 years of experience providing individual and group treatment to individuals who are struggling with behavioral health issues, mental health and substance use. And it was within the last 
several years that I really developed an interest in substance use within the community that I was living in. And as a result of my interest, I had decided to establish a substance use prevention coalition. And in order to initiate the development of a coalition, it's quite a navigation to get it up and going and sponsored, things of that nature. So the first step that I needed to do was to pull together a group of stakeholders who represented members in the community. And so that stakeholder group included individuals from schools, private and public, such as social workers, teachers, nurses, representatives from the police department, representatives from behavioral health organizations, town administrators, religious organizations, the Board of Health, school committee, physicians, concerned parents and community members, and youth as well. And so we had a really well-rounded, well-represented group of individuals in the community to begin the process of really carving out how it is that we wanted to define substance use and then intervene in the community. And one of the interesting sort of dilemmas that we faced was the community's reaction to the work that we were doing. And the reaction from many in the community was really one of not believing that the community had a substance use problem among its youth which took us a little bit by surprise because mm -hmm. the precipitant to pulling together this substance use uh, prevention coalition was the result of several near-death incidents that occurred within the community that involved primarily underage drinking and youth ending up in situations that put them in harm's way. So it seemed to me that there was evidence within the community that spoke to the fact that something was happening that maybe was not all that articulated by others. So we were going through a lot of discussions as to how to best arrive at the definition of substance use, what substances were used, things of that nature, and decided to pull together what we called a youth summit. And the theme of the summit was curiosity. So we didn't want to go in with any preconceived notions, any preconceived agendas specific to substance use in the community, but framed the summit as an opportunity for youth to really tell us what was going on versus be told what was going on. And we had a large number of youth attend the summit. We had about 60 high school kids and about 20 middle school youth attend. And we divided them into two different groups. We had the high school kids in one room, the middle school kids in another room. And I had recruited team leaders or facilitators 
for each table of 10 youth who were in their mid-20s because the feeling was that if we could find individuals who were closer to the age of the youth who were attending, they would probably feel more open to discussing what was happening in the community with someone close to their own age versus someone older, such as myself. And that proved to be true, which was an interesting mm. fact. Yeah. Um, but I can't blame them. You probably want to be yeah. more comfortable talking with someone closer to your age. So we had trained the facilitators in asking open-ended questions, not being judgmental towards any statements that were said um, by the youth, engaging all the youth in the discussion at each table, and learned from the youth that from their perspective, there was a problem with youth's substance abuse in the community. And they prioritized those substances that they were most concerned about. And so the top substances were marijuana, alcohol, prescription drugs, most of which were stimulants for ADHD, like Adderall and Concerta and Ritalin, and stated that their use of those substances was much higher than anyone, including their parents, realized. They talked a lot about how they themselves or others with whom they were friends and familiar would be using marijuana before school, would cut out of class during school and use, and then use on the way home. That the same was true for the prescription or stimulant medication, that lots of times those were being passed out early in the morning before school. And they identified the issue of binge drinking occurring on Friday and Saturday nights. So that sort of heightened our concern, specifically because the kids themselves were the group to identify that there was an issue that they felt really needed to be addressed. So the next step was reaching out into the community to begin to initiate discussions with parents, teachers, community leaders. And we found that process to be challenging and found that many individuals with whom we spoke were, were hesitant to believe the information that was shared by the youth at the summit, almost in either disbelief or another way of framing it could potentially be denial that their children or children in the community were abusing any of the substances that were mentioned. It was hard for folks to wrap their arms around the concept that prevention was needed because they didn't believe that there was a problem. That just blows my mind, I just have to say. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult, I think, challenging issue for parents to want to address and confront with their children. And I think that there are a number of reasons why that's true. I think the strongest 
is that you really don't want to believe that your kids are using substances. And this was a community in which the kids functioned very well on a day-to-day basis. They did really well at school. They were active in sports, active in community activities, things of that nature. A good bunch of kids. And in addition to those activities, they were also using substances. And probably, I would say 90% of them were not using them to the extent where a high level of intervention was needed, such as a detox or an out-of-home placement. But it was something that was happening on a regular, consistent basis in which there was the potential for a negative outcome to occur or situations in which a negative outcome did occur. And those would involve things where kids would be together at a party and there was an excessive amount of drinking and someone may have been drinking so much that they passed out. And the typical rule of thumb among many kids when a friend of theirs passes out is to take a magic marker, for example, and draw funny things on their faces. So Right, you know, right. Write words on their faces. And they, those kids really didn't see or understand the potential negative outcome that could happen, whether it was a kid passing out, a kid aspirating, things of that nature. And so that was a whole nother arena that the coalition wanted to focus on, which was that of educating the youth about substance use and how to navigate challenging situations when they saw their friends struggling or challenged with substance use rather than making fun of them or leaving them curled up in a corner, addressing it in a more aggressive and helpful way. That's, yeah, we, that's Excuse me? I was, gonna, I was just going to say that's great. I think they all need to understand that. But go ahead, continue on. Sorry. No, I was, I was just going to add that we, because of those types of situations and the need and desire for the education on, from the kids' perspective, we were able to offer several education programs to a small number of youth. We wish that we had been allowed to collaborate and coordinate more with the public school system because they've got the captive population, but because of a number of complex issues facing the school at the time that we approached them, they were not comfortable with us coming into the system and providing the type of education that we provided in a small group outside of the school. And those were, that group were, were children, kids who were engaged with the coalition and were very much interested in that, receiving that education. But unfortunately, we didn't reach as large a group as we would have liked to have reached. Yeah, that's a shame. That really is. 
I know I went to recently, Chris Heron came to speak at my local high school, and I just I happened to find out about it, and they had two sessions during the day, and they had all of the students there. And, and then they invited the community to and parents to attend in the evening, so I was fortunate enough to go over there. And it was it was absolutely amazing, and it struck me. I, I just I thought of the story that you had shared, Mark, at dinner, this story here, and how important this is in the school system and how it doesn't, that it, it just really shocks me. I'm not a parent myself, but Ellie is, and I know they have education in her um, child's school system, her children's school system, but it, it, I, we, there came a need when we now have sex education in school for children, oh. and I think that if people would open their eyes, they, could, they should see that there's a need for drug and alcohol awareness as a regular curriculum in school. So I, and the training that you're talking about, I think people... They just want to turn a blind eye and say, oh, we did that too when we were in high school. We partied. They're just kids being kids. But mm-hmm. I, from what I've seen, it's a lot more serious today than right. the stuff that they're playing around with is, has a lot more deeper consequences. Like Jeff was saying, with Morgan, her experimenting went from you know, what we consider, oh, not a big deal. Maybe I, I personally now understand that everything is a big deal. We think it's not a big deal, and then the next thing, you have kids dropping off. I know in my community, there were, I believe, five overdoses resulting in death in a period of one month. And in South Boston, there was a report. It was a crazy number. It was something like 20 or 25 cases of overdoses in in a one-month period of time. And so it's just um, staggering to me. Well, we heard from the kids because the school did have a curriculum specific to substance use. But what they shared with us was that it was much like attending a class where they Mm -hmm. were hearing information about substances and not participating actively in the discussion or integrating the information in a personal way, which was how we presented the training outside of the school. So sort of it was like very talked inter- at instead of talking with each other, sort of being yeah, exactly, to. exactly as shared, yeah. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour.com. 
and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. The last thing I just wanted to say to parents who have been touched by Jeff's story or the conversation that we've been having has resonated with them, that they're not alone, that Mm -hmm. there are many other people out there struggling either with children who are challenged and struggling with substance use or just worried about their children because they don't know specifically whether they are using substances or not. So I just want to encourage parents to reach out to their schools, reach out to their human service agencies, reach out to substance use treatment facilities like Gosnold, because there is assistance for you out there. That, that sense of feeling like you're alone and confused and struggling only exacerbates the problem. And yeah. getting assistance and reaching out to others can be incredibly motivating and inspiring and helpful. That's so well put, Mark. And I, we entitled the show Denial Equals Death just because we were trying a little dramatic flair, but to try to get people's attention to say, but underneath the roots of denial, I think a lot of it has to do with stigma or shame or embarrassment or either for yourself or for somebody that you care about, especially if it's a child that you feel somehow responsible for if they're struggling with, with an addiction. But that whole stigma and that the, we debated naming this, entitling the show Silence Equals Death because it's the silence that is really deadly mm-hmm. in this and right. having the courage to reach out. And there's a whole world that unfolds when the minute you put up your hand and ask for help, whether it's help for yourself or help for a loved one. And we, again, I'll, I'll take off some resources here that you can go to online. But that trying to stay contained and make sure nobody finds out and handle it all on your own, is it's a really horrible, lonely, isolating, desperate place to be. And taking yeah. that first step to reach out for help is so critical. So thank you for emphasizing that point. All of us in recovery, we wouldn't be here if we hadn't at one point taken that step to say, mm-hmm. I give up or I need help or how I can't do this alone. Because yeah. you can't. Right. You, just, you can, but it's miserable. It doesn't really work. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. All right, everybody, this is where we leave off for this shorter version of this conversation. But the episode does continue for another 30 minutes, and you can hear that if you join us over on Patreon, where we have the extended versions ad-free of all of our shows. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for walking this walk with us. We're glad you're here. Sober is a great way to live. And if it's something you aspire to, keep going. It's worth the effort. If you are walking this walk, please know you're not alone. We thank you for being here. Until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power head on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to 
Just want to be free 